You are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Welcome to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground and around the world, exploring the events and meaning of the current invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, temporarily standing in for your host, Anne Levine. After many years of stated neutrality, the country of Finland has become a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Finland applied for NATO membership in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, together with Sweden. Last July, the 30 standing members of NATO voted to ratify Finland's membership. Sweden's membership is still pending. On April 4th in 2023, Finland's national anthem was played, and their flag was raised in an accession ceremony at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg stated, Joining NATO is good for NATO as a whole. He noted that President Putin failed to, quote, slam NATO's doors shut. Instead of less NATO, he has achieved the opposite. More NATO and our door remains firmly open, he said. Finland, Russia's neighbor to the northwest, shares a more than 800 miles border. Thus, their NATO membership marks a dramatic change in the political landscape in northern Europe. Rihor Nishnikau is a senior research fellow on the topics of Russia, Northern and Eastern Europe and Eurasia, and the European Union and NATO. He studies Russia's and the European Union's policies towards Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus, and political developments in these countries. I called him to get a first-hand description of how Finland's new NATO membership is felt there and in Europe, and to get a better understanding of why Finland made this dramatic change. Finland shares a number of experiences with Ukraine, and Rihor discussed international relations from outside the perspective of a superpower. And the vision he hopes that Finland can bring to NATO that nurtures cooperation and rule of law between nations instead of power struggles, and which allows for the smaller powers to have a seat at the table. He spoke with me from the Finnish Institute of International Affairs in Helsinki, Finland, I started our conversation by asking Rehort to explain exactly where he works. Finnish Institute of International Affairs is an independent research institute which is funded by the Finnish parliament to inform on policy and advise government and also European institutions to inform public debates on different issues. About how many people are in the institute? I think we are around 50 researchers overall, not too big not too small. You're a government-sponsored institution. Uh, yes, but we are parliament-sponsored so that we actually can be mm-hmm. independent from the government. Obviously, we cooperate with the government on different projects that they find important. But we are independent in the research and can choose topics and issues that we find important. Okay, so Finland did officially become the newest member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. How did that day feel to you? How, how did you experience it? Well, actually, it went quite easy. I think everybody was quite sure that Finland would become a member of NATO, and it was a matter of time. So when this happened, everything was quite ordinary. 
there were uh, general elections in Finland and everybody was focusing on the elections and the election results. Is the change felt at all in Finland? Nothing really changed and the actual event was quite mundane, uh, but maybe the tipping point was last year when the Finnish public opinion changed so drastically and everybody felt somewhat shocked and maybe somewhat bizarre that now Finnish public and decision makers just changed in a matter of days towards NATO. So now things were looking quite simple and as fait accompli already. When you talk about it being a dramatic change and maybe a little bit of a shock at the beginning when the change happened, do I understand correctly that that really was tied up with the invasion of Ukraine and the sudden change in the perception in the area? Yes, correct. The Russian invasion was this tipping point when Finnish society in particular felt really overwhelmed. They really realized that the Finnish neutrality and its special relationship with Russia did not offer any security. And they definitely felt very much as Ukrainians because of this historical trauma of Soviet Union attacking Finland in 1939. For anyone listening who does not know Finland's history, can you just very briefly describe what happened in the 20th century between Finland and Russia? Finnish people felt so sympathetic with Ukrainians because what Russia has been doing to Ukraine right now resembles what Russia was doing to Finland in 1930s. Because if we go back to 1930s, Russia came up with somewhat similar demands to Finland, first of all. So before Soviet Union attacked and invaded Finland in 1939, basically Stalin gave a number of demands and ultimatums to Finland, such as, for instance, you need to form a friendly government. Russia really tried to interfere in domestic as well as foreign and security politics of Finland. And basically when Finland rejected, uh, tried to simply occupy the territory of Finland and overthrow the government. And to save the country, Finnish politicians had to make a lot of very severe compromises. And after the Second World War, most of the Finnish policies were somewhat dictated by Moscow. So they had to sign a number of treaties which were also humiliating to to Helsinki. So everybody lived under this trauma. And I would repeat myself, when these things happened to Ukraine, things felt like deja vu. This happened to us in 1930s. Finnish people identified with the Ukrainian situ- with the Ukrainians in their situation. Yes, so in this respect, uh, the Finnish public just changed its mind overnight and became favorable of joining NATO overwhelmingly. And the Finnish politicians, they followed the suit. They basically agreed that the Russian threat needs a new response to which NATO and its collective security provisions were needed. So I think Finnish foreign and security policy has changed dramatically. And I think in Finland there is still no clear understanding what it will entail and how Finland will adjust itself will be a big question in the, in the next month and years. Is there a sense that Finland is safer now that you're in NATO? Well, absolutely. The actual changes are massive. So that we definitely can say that Finland is safer because Finland now is under NATO umbrella, including nuclear umbrella. So that already is a big change. 
but also Finland is now a part of this collective defense instrument that NATO offers, which means that any attack on Finland will be an attack on NATO. So the change is massive, and I think it also indicates that Finnish defense and foreign policy will not be the same, that the Finnish role in the Baltic Sea will be different. And we can definitely say now that the security in Northern Europe will not be the same and that the integration of the Nordic cooperation and NATO cooperation will deepen dramatically. And this also entails a massive change for Moscow, for Russia and for Russian-Finnish relations. I think that if we look at the Russian defense and military policy, it can't be the same for a simple reason that Russia's Baltic fleet, for instance, is massively impacted by this Finnish accession and soon also Swedish accessions, which means that Russia's Baltic fleet can no longer operate as before. So it's a massive change and I think this uh, will be felt um, quite soon, I think. Russia has threatened retaliation for all this. Is there a concern about retaliation in Finland? No, I think not, for a simple reason that if uh, Russia wanted to give a response, it actually should have done it before NATO accession. So Russia basically had a year to respond and to show that there would be a cost for the accession, but it didn't do anything. And I think the major hope that nothing's going to happen also is that Russia is so much focused on Ukraine and doesn't have any resources to actually uh, respond. That many in Helsinki feel very secure and very, very certain that Russia basically will not do anything. Originally, Sweden and Finland had made a joint application and uh, Finland was saying that it would not join NATO without Sweden. Why the change now? Why why did Finland go ahead? Well, I think it was a Finnish decision which was somewhat endorsed by the partners as well as probably Sweden, even if reluctantly. And the Finnish decision was simple. We are given this opportunity, so let's not delay. And I think for everyone it was mm-hmm. fine because you never know what happens in Turkey whether it will change its mind again. So uh, I think that was just a simple um, decision by Finnish politicians that if we have the opportunity, let's use it. In order for a country to join NATO, there has to be a unanimous acceptance of all the NATO countries. And to date, Turkey and Hungary have not accepted Sweden yet. But it's a matter of time when Sweden joins, maybe a matter of month. Swedish application is also on path of endorsement. I don't think that Turkey and Hungary will delay it for too long. But I think it's not that important that Finland and Sweden do it together. Do you think that Sweden already feels safer with Finland in NATO? Yes, I think so. Swedish-Finnish cooperation is so deep, having Finland in NATO makes Sweden also secure by default. Sweden is a part of all different intra-Nordic cooperation agreements. Like, for instance, they have now the joint air fleet with Finland, Denmark and Norway and all other very in-depth different partnerships that basically Finland now also becomes part of NATO. So these partnerships has only become more operational and more efficient in deterrence and maybe even uh, combating different threats. I learned that Finland is planning to join the UN Security Council. 
Yes, yes, it will become a non-permanent member in 2029. Also, it'll be chairing the Organizations for Security and Cooperation in Europe, the OSCE, in 2025. Can you just briefly say what that is? It's this major security organization in Europe, which was established in 1975 to serve more like a forum for dialogue and cooperation between the Eastern Bloc and the and the Western Bloc. And for Finland, the major challenge is that with the current Russia's war of aggression and the new emergent divisive lines in Europe, the OEC is becoming more and more dysfunctional. So how it can actually increase its role, but also make it more efficient in its main goal of providing security in Europe is, is a big challenge. And definitely Finland will try to look for ways how to make it more efficient. It's a huge task. Finland is a member of the European Union and sees itself as wanting to have a voice in that. Does being a NATO member change that relationship to the European Union? No, actually it only increases the Finnish role in the European Union and also its connection with the EU because most of the European Union member states are also NATO member states. It's very few exceptions. And actually, it's now becoming a bit odd to be out of NATO while being the member of the EU. So in this respect, Finland will only become more deeply integrated in the European Union and also become more valid partner in the EU's own security and defense policies and instruments. So for Finland, it's a way to underline its belonging to Europe. So they are looking at it with more hope that actually it will also make Finland's role in the region of Northern Europe, where you have supporters of Euro-Atlantic integration, such as Baltic countries and Poland. So it will basically only increase the role of Finland in this regional group. So in a way, it kind of makes you a more full member of Europe to be both in NATO and the, and the European Union. Exactly. European Union and NATO membership are kind of a complement. And for much of the Finnish pro-NATO and pro-Europe policymakers, it was, in their view, a mistake to join the EU without joining NATO. So they were long advocating the approach, which would mean that you join European Union, but also NATO. And they would actually argue that Finland joined NATO too late. You are listening to Ukraine 242, a weekly show featuring interviews with key people on the ground and around the world exploring the events and meaning of the current invasion of Ukraine. I'm Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network, temporarily standing in for your host, Anne Levine. We are hearing today from Rihor Nishnikau, a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, an independent Finnish public policy research facility in Helsinki, Finland. During the first half of our conversation, we discussed Finland's joining NATO on April 4th. I then wanted to ask him some about Finland's worldview and its position in Europe. Finland joining NATO was a response to the invasion of Ukraine, but I would like if you would help us understand the bigger context of what Finland's worldview is for international politics. Finland has seen itself as some kind of a cradle of the spirit of cooperation between different worlds, between the East and the West, building trust between the countries, but also strengthening international institutions. Obviously, you have to build your security, your defense, 
but do it first in a very rule-based manner and also do it in a way that doesn't undermine other values such as democracy and human rights and also underline that the future and the stability of the global order lies on these eternal values which actually uh, not based on uh, your power or your uh, let's say resources but is rather built on the more longer term benefits that come from this value-based principles so i think this is what finland tries to do and it's as a tool of enhancing this and also you follow the same logic when we talk for instance about ukraine you help ukraine to survive the war but at the same time you do not neglect the institution building in the country that you actually build up the democratic and human rights pillars which would be the major point of resilience for the society and probably uh, for long-term prosperity for the whole country. I was wondering if we could just go briefly into the historical description of the moment we're at. For many in the West and in Finland, 1990s was the moment of opportunity where you can actually try to both integrate former rivals, the institutions, make their presence more visible, give them more opportunities, and by that use it as confidence and trust-building measures which can secure peace and prosperity, at least in the wider Europe area, which was before that, for after the Second World War, one of the major battlegrounds between the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc. The problem is that it didn't work. And I think there is still a debate why. There have been a lot of mistakes on all sides, I would put it this way. But many would argue that, for instance, some blame lies on the United States, that it really tried to use this unilateral momentum to be too imposing on the others, which made countries like Russia very disgruntled and made them feel cheated and also made many in Europe unhappy because many in Europe wanted to gain their own decision-making. And this was also coupled with the rise of new powers in the world, primarily China, which didn't see international systems and global rules as convenient and beneficial for them. And the more power they've been gaining, the more interested they became to change the rules. And this actually only led to the rise of some kind of a zero-sum game thinking in many of the capitals and many of the regional leaders, be it, uh, I don't know, China, Russia, Brazil, or even the United States with the Trump administration. This definitely created a lot of misbalances in the world, and that's where we are right now. When you say zero-sum game, what you're saying is that it's a way of looking at power where you can't have win-win situation where there's mutual cooperation, but uh, there's a winner and a loser, right? Exactly. And that's a problem because many would say this is the mindset of many. And how would you convince them that actually it can be a win-win situation for all of us? So in this respect, one of the first steps is that before convincing them, we should avoid getting this mentality ourselves and trying to actually approach what is really global problems. And uh, if we don't address them, it will make everybody actually a loser. So this is the major fear and probably the major driver of the Finnish and Nordic thinking 
how can we revert this zero-sum game thinking and how this can be avoided? How can we avoid the clash between Washington and Beijing and what's going to be the role for Europe and for the Nordics in this? What kind of a role we can actually play to avoid bigger troubles? Because with the end of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the problems don't disappear. The goal is to build cooperation in formal institutions is to protect the security and the agency of the smaller powers instead of just having the big powers run the scene, which is where countries like Finland and Ukraine come in. Am I making sense by putting that together that way? Yes, and it's really important to avoid Russia's victory in Ukraine. If you allow this, you would actually basically open the door to, let's say, the Chinese attack on Taiwan, hypothetically. I think this is why it is so important to build up cooperation and actually build trust through cooperation to actually prevent countries like Russia to totally destabilize the international system and use this kind of a divide and rule policies where you just say, well, when you will agree on our terms in Ukraine, bad things will end. No, because it will then move elsewhere. And that's why Finland joins NATO and also intensifies its support and cooperation with Ukraine, because you really have to help the ones in need to also prevent such crises in the future. So I think this is probably the center stage of Finnish approach. And the United States? We do see that the U.S. has been one of the main benefactors of the post-Cold War Older. So we did have this unilateral moment when the U.S. was the only superpower. And now when things become more, let's say, fragile, when, they, when we are moving towards this multipolarity moment, you see that the U.S. is really trying to use multilateralism in a sort of a cherry-picking mode, that you really only support cooperation, multilateral cooperation, when it's beneficial to you. But when it's uh, not, you withdraw from it. This is actually something which still remains a threat. So, for instance, WTO, World Trade Organization, the U.S. is one of the main benefactors, but let's say the U.S. is not part of the international criminal court system, because what if we are punished? And this sends our own signal to everyone that if you are strong, then you are not subject to common rules. And we go back probably to the Bush administration, we go uh, not so far back to the Trump administration, where much of the problem was coming from Washington, where it really tried to actually sometimes even cheat on its own allies. And this is something that maybe it gives short-term benefits to the United States, but it's detrimental in the longer term and really erodes the trust which has been built for decades. This is really dangerous. Do you see the United States, in a sense, thinking more in terms of imposing power instead of developing cooperation? Yes. In the U.S., that basically, you always respond to different challengers from the international system so that basically the rise of any other power is detrimental to, to you. But it not always means that if somebody tries to have its voice raised or somebody becomes... Uh, probably more uh, prosperous and is rising, that it necessarily means a challenge to the United States. So in this respect, seeing anyone as a potential challenger becomes really detrimental and actually sometimes only nudges this riser uh, to, to respond 
And this is the problem. So this, again, brings us to this sort of a zero-sum thinking that the U.S. pushes others to respond. And in my opinion, this is given the wrong impression when the U.S. could have been the leader of the international system, but instead it becomes a kind of a user of it. And that obviously leads to a lot of discontent also among the natural U.S. allies in Europe. And I'm not even talking about the Chinese and Russians who basically think that the U.S. is a dictator, that they write the rules and then they violate these rules when it's not uh, convenient for them. Does Finland feel that way about the United States? Uh, no, Finland is actually having quite of a positive relationship to the U.S., partially because cooperation with the United States was always the main security guarantee against potential Russian escalation. This special relationship with the United States was very important. But uh-huh. definitely in Finland, many were and many are still unhappy about the U.S. behavior in the human rights dimension. They think that you can't just criticize, for instance, Xi Jinping about one thing and then basically say that when we violate human rights, you know, it's in our security interest, so just ignore that. So they think that you need to be more committed to these issues. Principle in Europe, the Trump presidency was a big, big wake-up call that you can't no longer fully rely on the United States because if we have someone like Trump in power, we are left alone, especially in security dimension, but also in democracy and human rights element of the global system. So. We as Europeans have to find our own solutions if the U.S. becomes unreliable partner. Partners should be prepared to step in and take care of matters when the United States does not. Exactly. Definitely, for now, with the Biden administration, a lot of things have been soothed. And the U.S. again showed commitment also to the transatlantic alliance. But what happens uh, after Biden? What happens if the U.S. domestic divisions and domestic rifts become semi-permanent and only get worse? So where Europe is left with then? For instance, the U.S.-Chinese competition goes out of hand. So for Europe, it becomes paramount to find its own solutions. Okay, thank you so much. Any last comment? No, thank you so much. Have a good evening. Thank you. Waterloo by ABBA. This music was selected by our guest who wanted to play something Swedish to show support. Our thanks to our guest, Rihor Nishnikov, Senior Research Fellow at the Finnish Institute Waterloo of by International ABBA. Affairs. This music Russia, was selected by our guest who Eastern wanted to play something Swedish program. to show His support. area of expertise is in the European Union. Our thanks Union's to our guest, Eastern Rihor Nishnikov, Russia Senior Policy Research Fellow the at the Finnish Institute of Domestic and Foreign Policies in Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine. Ukraine. Eastern His research can be found at the website of the Finnish Institute at FII.ai.
Russia policy His name is spelled post-Soviet space. Domestic and foreign policies of Belarus, Moldova, and Ukraine. His research can be found at the website of the Finnish Institute His name is spelled R Y H N I Z H. That's R-Y-H-O-R. And the last I have been your host and producer for this week, Chris Larenberg from Pacifica Network. Thank you for listening. And see you next week on Ukraine2VHNIKAU. I have been your host and producer for this week, Ursula Rudenberg from Pacifica Network. Thank you for listening, and see you next week on Ukraine 242.